that the social and cultural problems that affect our country today can all be attributed back to a wrong view of baptism. I've been thinking about baptism uh, weeks recently. We had a couple of baptisms just last month in our church on a couple of different weeks, and so it made me think that we would do well to take the time to reflect on, to reacquaint ourselves with the biblical doctrine of baptism, that we might know exactly what does baptism mean, what is it for, what is proper baptism. And my chief concern is not addressing the how or the whom of baptism, uh, but the when and especially the why or the why not of baptism. Now, to whom am I speaking this morning? Uh, For whom is it important to have uh, a sound and proper uh, view of baptism? It occurs to me that there are, there's really five groups of people that need to uh, understand baptism well. The first of those would be those who baptize, uh, the leadership of churches, those who administer baptism, need to really understand what it is, what it's for, how to administer it in order to be faithful. The second group are those believers who, for whatever reason, have not been baptized, need to have a sound view, need to appreciate what baptism is for those in that category, but so too must three, those believers who have been baptized. If you have been baptized and if you have gone through that, uh, that rite, it is critical that you understand what the implications are. The fourth group who need to have a sound view of baptism are parents uh, or others who are mentoring or advising those young in the faith, uh, who are looking to them for guidance regarding baptism. Should I be baptized? Should I not be baptized? And then the fifth group that really need to understand what baptism is are those who do not identify as Christians. I think we'll find that baptism is actually intended for those who are not believers as well as for those who are believers. So those who need to have a sound understanding of baptism are those who baptize, those believers who have not been baptized, those believers who have been baptized, parents and others advising those young in the faith, and those who are not believers, those who do not identify as Christians. Uh, So if you are not in one of those categories, you are dismissed. Um, And we'll go forward. Let me lead us in prayer as we seek to undertake uh, a study of this subject briefly here. Lord God, uh, the subject of baptism is one that is important to you as evidenced by the teaching of scripture on this topic, uh, the amount that is uh, spoken about baptism and the weight uh, that is given to it. And Lord, I pray that those... uh, who are present this morning with myself, would listen carefully to what you speak in your word, and I pray that you would uh, equip us uh, with a a godly fear of the significance of baptism, and that you would use that institution to accomplish your designs by it. Uh, Lord, I pray especially that you would help me this morning, for you know uh, my limitations and Uh, My desire is that truth should go forward and that I would not be an obstacle to that truth, but that I would be a vehicle for that truth. And Lord, I pray that uh, for the sake of your church, for uh, the saints for whom Christ died, 
that you would be pleased to uh, use me in that capacity and that we might be edified uh, and grounded in the truth for his name's sake. Amen. A discussion of baptism uh, usually gets focused on the questions of how and whom. Uh, The how of baptism, what we call mode of baptism, uh, means do we uh, baptize by immersion in water, by pouring of water, by sprinkling of water. Those have been uh, historically the three uh, approaches to baptism. The question of whom to baptize uh, refers to the so-called pedo-credo baptism debate. Uh, What do these terms mean? Pedo-baptism, spelled P-A-E-D-O, comes from the Greek word for child, ped, and find that word comes to us through Latin is P-E-D in words such as pediatrician, pedophile, pedagogy. All of these come from uh, the Greek word for child. And pedobaptism refers to the baptizing of infants of Christian families. Credobaptism, credo is the Latin word that gives us the word creed. Uh, If you look in the back of our hymn book, you'll find the text of the Apostles' Creed and of the Nicene Creeds, these two Uh, famous creeds of uh, church history. Uh, In their Latin translation, both begin with the word credo, that means I believe. Those are the first words of the creeds. So uh, credo baptism has been coined to refer to the baptism of only those confessing personal faith in Christ. We might also call these two views that of infant baptism and believer's baptism. Uh, Of course, Baptizing those who have a personal faith in Christ is not possible for infants, and therefore that makes the distinction between the two. Uh, Approaching those questions does require a great deal of humility, and I want to urge us to that end. We must be aware that there are those on every side of the debate who are sincerely seeking to live in submission to the teaching of the Bible and yet have reached different conclusions regarding what the Bible teaches. Um, To be sure, uh, I imagine there are those on every side of the debate who are stubbornly holding to their own tradition simply because they don't want to be found wrong, Um, but that would be true of every side as well. For us, uh, we need to examine our own hearts and make sure we're really seeking to be guided by Scripture and willing to submit and being gracious toward others who are doing the same, and yet, for whatever reason, have reached a different conclusion. Why are there different conclusions uh, that have been reached? The main problem is the fact that the New Testament, when it comes to baptism, uh, is inexplicit in its instructions for baptism. It doesn't come out in so many words to say, this is whom you should baptize and whom you should not baptize, and this is how baptism should be administered. Instead, we reach the answer to those questions from three lines of evidence. Uh, One, New Testament example of baptism. How do we see baptism being administered and to whom in the New Testament? Uh, B, Old Testament antecedent. Where do we find an Old Testament pattern that helps us understand baptism? And C, early church tradition when it comes to how was baptism being practiced by the church after the time of the apostles and the writing of the scripture. So when we look to the New Testament and we look at the question of 
what did baptism look like in the early church as it was administered by the apostles? What we find there is baptism by immersion uh, that is based on a credible profession of faith. And I don't think that there's anyone that really denies that that's the general picture that we see in the New Testament. Those who were being baptized in the New Testament were being baptized by immersion, and they were those who were professing a faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, For myself, and I think I speak for the leadership at Bible Chapel here, our elders as well, that pretty much decides it in terms of uh, how to baptize and whom to baptize. But a question does remain uh, whether the examples we see in the New Testament are exclusively believers by immersion. Uh, There are two cases in the book of Acts where we're told that households uh, were being baptized. A man and his household uh, are baptized. Uh, What does that mean? Does that imply then that there were members of the household, including young children or others, uh, who were baptized not on the basis of their own faith, but because the head of the household, what in that culture is called the paterfamilias, made a decision for the household and they uh, follow in that uh, whether voluntarily or not. Um, That would be an argument from silence and on the face of it a fairly weak argument, I think, uh, but it gains strength uh, and that would also affect the how question. Uh, If infants in those households were being baptized, Uh, To my knowledge, no one yet has proposed infant baptism by immersion. That is evidently just too dangerous a suggestion. And so if there were infants being baptized in the book of Acts, then would they not also have been baptized by some other mode, pouring, sprinkling, or whatnot? Again, it's an argument from silence, hard to draw a strong case from it. We're not for the fact that strain of evidence B is looking at early church practice, early church tradition, and we find fairly early on, depending how you define early, there are Christians who are baptizing uh, whole households, including infants. Uh, Does that then mean we should read back into the book of Acts and see those households as also performing infant baptism? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, That puts a lot of weight on church tradition, which got a number of things wrong very early on, even in uh, Bible times. The apostles are criticizing, uh, Paul criticizes churches to whom he writes for, uh, for getting their uh, practice of faith confused. And so putting too much weight on tradition seems to be a very uh, faulty approach. So that brings us to strand of evidence C, and that is what about the Old Testament? Do we have any Old Testament antecedents that inform us regarding the how and the whom of baptism. The New Testament, to a large degree, the authors of the New Testament are applying Old Testament revelation to the new reality in Christ. If you look through the pages of the New Testament, a whole lot of it, maybe even a majority of it, is Bible study. They're reading their Bible, the Old Testament, and showing how this applies to Christianity. So if baptism is a visible sign of an invisible reality, should not the mode of baptism reflect that reality? And if we can look to the Old Testament and find some clues regarding the nature of this new covenant, what is the new reality, would that not inform us with regard to the mode of baptism? 
And indeed, we find a wealth of images regarding the new covenant, including pouring. Uh, Joel 2.28, the prophet describes the new covenant to come by saying, It shall come to pass afterwards. God says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Baptism is joined to the idea of God giving his spirit to the believer. So pouring would seem to reflect that prophetic reality. Uh, Ezekiel 36 25 through 26, God says regarding the new covenant to come that I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Well, that's a baptism reality, God giving a new heart, creating somebody new, cleansing from uncleanness. Well, sprinkling, it says there, uh, God is going to sprinkle with water. Baptism by sprinkling would reflect that reality. But in the next chapter, Ezekiel uh, 37, 12, God says, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Uh, Being uh, raised from the dead is also an image of new covenant reality here. And immersion would reflect that reality very well. So all three modes have some Old Testament imagery that would speak in favor of um, it being an effective way of communicating the realities of the new covenant, the realities of what has uh, happened in the experience of the believer. When we come to the New Testament, however, we really see that uh, the sprinkling and the pouring analogies, convenient as they are, the New Testament does not make use of those analogies in reference to baptism. Instead, the New Testament gives us the example of washing, and the example of resurrection tied to baptism. For example, when Paul uh, is saved, comes to know the Lord Jesus, he is told, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There's a connection between baptism and washing, and yet washing in the Old Testament is usually not sprinkling, uh, but usually is taking a bath, dipping. Immersion. In fact, the word baptize itself is used in the Greek Old Testament for washings that are done, uh, for example, by uh, bathing in the Jordan seven times. Uh, One example of a man where that term is actually used. With regard to resurrection, we read in Colossians 2.12, Paul says that you have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. You are dead in baptism and raised. That would suggest an immersion experience. So as far as the imagery is concerned, it seems to be only immersion that best captures the imagery that the New Testament associates with baptism. Washing and death and resurrection come through both of those. The clincher for all of them is that the word baptize itself is from a Greek word that simply means to dip. Uh, that would seem to decide it. So, so much for how does the Old Testament antecedents help with the, uh, the how question. What about the whom question? Does the Old Testament help us there? Those who take an infant baptism position are quick to link baptism with the Old Testament practice of circumcision. Uh, each is a rite of initiation, marking entrance into the covenant community. Uh, God commanded circumcision to be administered shortly after birth. 
Uh, the male children on the eighth day after their birth were to be circumcised. Thus, circumcision was administered at a time when the child had made no conscious choice to enter the community. He was passive uh, in the rite. Uh, and therefore, if there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is it not then logical that God would institute a rite such as baptism that would be administered shortly after birth to mark the entrance of a child into the general community of faith, even without that child's particular consent. That would seem to be uh, a parallel between Old Testament and New Testament. Well, the credo-baptist on the other side, the one who supports believer's baptism, sometimes responds by denying the connection between baptism and circumcision entirely. After all, the New Testament never mentions circumcision in connection with baptism at all. So, perhaps that's a false parallel. But I think that's the wrong approach. I do think the connection between baptism and circumcision is an apt one, and we can learn a lot from it. The trouble is, how do we define birth? Uh, The New Testament speaks at length of a new birth, uh, being born in connection with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, faith in Jesus Christ, salvation all connected to that new birth into a living hope. And so connecting Old Testament natural birth with natural birth today is actually a false parallel. The true parallel would be between uh, the child who is born into Israel, an ethnic group, sociopolitical group, etc., and being born into the spiritual community of faith by the new birth, if we draw that parallel, which seems to be the parallel the New Testament is drawing, then yes, somebody should be circumcised shortly after birth. Somebody should be baptized shortly after new birth. There should be a close connection between coming to faith in Jesus Christ, professing that faith in him as Lord and Savior, and being baptized as a mark of that covenant. Then we have, I think, the right conclusion and the true parallel. So circumcision does help us, I think, with the question of whom to baptize. Uh, should be those uh, fairly soon upon coming to faith. Uh, circumcision also helps us with the when question and the why question. Uh, Just as circumcision was a sign of membership in that covenant that God established, so baptism, uh, when should it be administered? Close upon um, regeneration. And why as a sign of entrance into that covenant that God has established by the blood of Jesus Christ? In the Old Testament, somebody who did not circumcise his children, to be uncircumcised was a repudiation of the covenant, and such a person was to be cut off from the community. That was serious to resist uh, circumcision. And therefore, baptism should be regarded the same way. To resist baptism or refuse baptism is, in some degree, a repudiation of that new covenant in Christ Jesus. I don't want a part in that covenant. All right, now, since the New Testament, however, all that being said, the New Testament does not connect circumcision to baptism, what do we find in the New Testament? Well, instead of circumcision, when Paul looks to the Old Testament for an analogy of baptism, 
What he points to is the Exodus. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time here today. Uh, if you would, turn to the passage that was read for us earlier by Jordan, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And here Paul links baptism to the Exodus, specifically the Red Sea crossing and the cloud that accompanied them. If you would look with me once more at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, We read in verses 1 and 2, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He says the Israelites, they were all baptized, not at their birth, but in the birth of their nation. They were baptized. What is he referring to when he speaks of this baptized in the cloud and in the sea? What's that all about? Well, Please put a place marker in 1 Corinthians 10, because we're coming right back here, uh, and turn back to Exodus chapter 13, and this is the portion of scripture that Paul is reading, thinking of, as he makes his comment about baptism. Exodus 13. Starting in verse 21. We read, and the Lord went before them by day and in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. There's a cloud that is leading the way with the people. Uh, Then looking at the next chapter, chapter 14, starting in verse 19. We read, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Here is Israel under the, well, I want to say under the shadow of the cloud, but actually under the illumination Uh, of the cloud in verse 20. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Adonai caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Here they are passing through the sea. Paul says this is baptism that you're seeing. They are being immersed, yet completely dry, through the sea, and the sea is all around them on right and on left as they pass through. Israel's baptism as they are born as a nation. Then, a little bit later in the chapter, in verse 29, we read, But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left So Adonai saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which Adonai had done in Egypt, so the people feared Adonai and believed Adonai and his servant Moses. All right, now, take your bookmark from 1 Corinthians 10, move it to Exodus 14, because we're coming back there too. 
but now we're returning to 1 Corinthians 10. After describing this episode in Israel's history and then a number of others that come closely thereafter in Exodus and in Numbers, when Paul gets to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, he says, Now all these things happened to them, to Israel, as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What Paul wrote in, or what God wrote in Exodus, that's for us. That's teaching us something about our experience. It's teaching us something about baptism. These are examples, and the Red Sea is going to help us understand baptism. So how is baptism like the Exodus? What is it that Paul wants us to see in this connection? Well, there's five aspects of the Red Sea crossing here, of the Exodus event, that um, help us understand the nature of baptism. The first is that the Israelites were baptized into a Savior, according to, according to Paul. Uh, going back to verse 2, Paul said, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Interesting choice of words. Being baptized into Moses, they were baptized into the sea, weren't they? How were they baptized into Moses? This is similar language that Paul will use when he's speaking to the Galatians. In Galatians uh, 3.27, Paul says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So both the Israelites and believers in Christ are baptized into a Savior. In the case of the Israelites, they were following Moses' lead. Moses was the one who spread his hands, and it caused the sea to likewise spread. Moses was the one who, by God's power, had made a way of salvation for the Israelites. And so by following his lead, going where he's going, they are being baptized into Moses. And now they are the people who are governed by the word of God through Moses. Likewise, Christians follow Christ into the waters of baptism. Interesting thing about baptism is that Christ himself was baptized. Sometimes that causes some head scratching. Uh, John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus, was preaching a baptism of repentance. And so the question rises, well, wait a minute. If baptism signified repentance and Jesus had not sinned, why would he then be baptized in this way? But, but, but Jesus is leading us in baptism. Jesus is showing the way, saying, come after me, be baptized. Uh, and just as Moses was leading the Israelites out of slavery, and yet he had never been a slave. He's a non-slave. He, he was uh, living in the house of the king, uh, yet he takes the position of the slaves, and he leads them and associates with them and leads them out of slavery. So too Jesus, despite never having sinned, he leads his people out of sin and darkness, and he begins in his life with baptism, in his ministry. So Jesus leads us through baptism. Those who are baptized are baptized into Jesus. When we're baptized, we're saying, I'm taking my cues from Jesus in how to serve God. He is my teacher, he is my Lord, and he is leading the way, and I follow. So, first, those who are baptized are baptized into a Savior. There's a connection here. 
The second point is that in baptism, we see the name of the Lord being magnified. Go back to Exodus for a moment. We'll look at the next chapter, chapter 15. And chapter 15 of Exodus is the celebration of the Red Sea crossing. We'll read just a couple of verses here. As they summarize in song what God had done at the sea, in verse 8, Moses sings, And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together, the flood stood upright like a heap, the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Turn to jello, he says. Uh, then, skipping a little bit further, we get to verse 13. Moses sings, You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. The Red Sea crossing was a public event. All the nations round about it heard about what happened there. It was no secret. And we see the proof that it was not a secret uh, already when we turn then to chapter 18 of Exodus. And a Gentile priest, who happens to be Moses' father-in-law, by name of Jethro, shows up. And in 1810, Jethro says... Blessed be Adonai who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Adonai is greater than all the gods for in the very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. When the nations hear about this salvation, Jethro responds by praising the name of that God who saved. It's a testimony to Jethro of what God can do and what God has done. And when we turn to the book of Joshua, we find more cases of the people about whom Moses sang, these Canaanites who hear and are afraid. Uh, In chapter 2 of Joshua, the harlot Rahab, after harboring Israelite spies in her house, speaks of what she has heard. Likewise, in verses 10 and 11, she says, For we have heard... How Adonai dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For Adonai, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She has heard of the testimony of the Lord's salvation and is now praising. Whereas her fellow citizens of Jericho have also heard, and their response is quite different. They are ready to destroy Israel, to resist, uh, to find them out and uh, remove them. We could look at Joshua 9.9 where we see another group, uh, the Gibeonites, who give a similar testimony. They have heard of what God did to the Egyptians, etc. What we're seeing is that baptism like the Red Sea crossing, is a public display of what God has done. And some, like Rahab, are going to hear about that testimony and will want to join. That's the desire. Others will hear and want to stamp it out, want nothing to do with it. In fact, uh, try to get rid of it. But Paul's point is that baptism makes salvation a public matter. 
Uh, every analogy breaks down. Uh, if an analogy doesn't break down, then it's not an analogy. It's the, it's the real thing. Uh, baptism and exodus, this is an analogy that's being drawn, and there's, of course, a critical difference. That is that the Red Sea crossing was in itself salvation. But because our salvation is an invisible thing, a spiritual thing that will only become evident over time, God institutes water baptism as a way that is public and obvious and visible as a testimony of what God has done. And therefore, while Israel's salvation was a very public matter, it is baptism that makes our salvation a public matter. So in baptism... We are baptized into a Savior, and the name of the Lord is magnified. The third similarity is that in baptism, as in the Exodus, God's name comes to be put upon his people. There's an identification that's made between God and the people who are baptized. Going back to Exodus once again. In chapter 6, I'm just going to pull out a few places, but uh, Exodus is full of other examples we could draw upon where God is associating his name with Israel. In Exodus 6, verse 7, God says to Moses, I will take you, Israel, as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am Adonai, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 22, He says, in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am Adonai in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. He's speaking to Pharaoh at this point. Tomorrow this sign will be. It will be obvious that this is my people. There's an identity, there's an association between me and this people. And that point is finally brought home at the Red Sea crossing in chapter 14, where we read in verse 25, he took off their chariot wheels, referring to the Egyptians who are pursuing them into the sea, so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for Adonai fights for them against the Egyptians. They get it. They see, yes, Adonai, this God, is connected with this people. They are a set. By being associated with God in this way, uh, God is condescending to put his name on a particular people and saying, you are my people. When God says of Israel, you will be my people and I will be your God, he's not talking about possession. You will belong to me because God goes on to say, all the earth is mine, right? All peoples are my peoples. I created them all. I have the right to do with them what I want. They all belong to me. But when God says, you will be my people, he's saying, I am going to put my name and give you the privilege of wearing my name so that you will be known as the people of the Lord, the people of Yahweh, Adonai here. And I will be known as the God of Israel. Now that's a gracious condescension that God will be willing to be called by their name to have on his name tag, God of Israel. Wow, you will be my people. You will be known as mine. And baptism is designed 
to clearly connect the name of Christ with those who are baptized. His name is attached to us. And because his name is attached to those who are baptized, there's a clear accountability from leadership of God's people. Um, When somebody is baptized as a believer and does not live in accordance with the commands of Christ, uh, but goes astray, then there's a clear means for leadership of the church to say, uh, if that person remains unrepentant, to the community of believers and to the world outside, this one here who's been called by the name of Christ, he's actually not one of ours. Don't connect us with that individual because baptism has formalized that link. When a person just casually connects to, um, to a church, to Christianity, maybe gets excited about it, makes no formal declaration, no baptism, it gets muddy when such a person now does not live in accordance with the teachings of Christ. Um, are you one of ours? Are you not? What do we tell the world? The world looks at this one and says, I, that seems to be one of those Christian people, and look at the way he's behaving. It does damage to the name of Christ because the connection is no longer clear. So baptism, like the Exodus, connects God's name clearly to the people who are baptized. Number four, the fourth connection is that baptism, in baptism, like in the Exodus, the fruit of faith becomes evident. It becomes manifest. Going back to Exodus, those who were saved at the sea are those whose houses were marked with the blood of the Passover, as God had commanded them. They are those who had eaten of that Passover lamb. They are those who had followed Moses where he told them to go. Uh, To do all those things is, on the surface of it, a demonstration of faith. These are those who trusted the word of Moses, trusted Moses' God, and were willing to... Uh, partake of the Passover and follow the instructions and go through the sea with him. It demonstrates faith. Baptism does the same thing. To be baptized is an obvious demonstration, a fruit of faith that I am willing to follow uh, this Savior. Uh, just to make that explicit, in Exodus chapter 12, we read at the end of verse 27, once Moses gives the instructions for the Passover, we read, So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as Adonai had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They are obedient because they trusted. And even more explicitly, at the end of chapter uh, 14, uh, we read, is that what I want? Uh, Verse 31, Israel saw the great work which Adonai had done in Israel, so the people feared Adonai and believed Adonai and his servant Moses. We see that faith is clearly tied to the course that they take. So baptism, as at the Exodus, makes evident the fruit of faith. But, and this is to Paul's point, although it is a fruit of faith, it is not necessarily the fruit of faith. Uh, As we know, there are other factors that could temporarily produce similar fruit. Uh, Peer pressure, for example. There could be Israelites who went through with the the Passover, not because they really trusted Moses, because everybody around them was doing it, and so they were kind of afraid to to stand out. 
Uh, Baptism demonstrates faith, but for some, the faith is not genuine. And that's Paul's point precisely when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Going back there one more time, Paul says in verse 5, after describing the experience of being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, in verse 5, Paul says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And he goes on to articulate um, all the different ways that they had uh, rebelled against the Lord. Verse 6, he says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. He's giving a warning. Yes, you have been baptized. And yes, that implies faith. But be careful. It's not the same thing as having saving faith. It should be the fruit of faith, but it can be false. It can be misleading. All right. Five ways in which baptism is similar to the Exodus that Paul wants us to connect. Uh, Those who are baptized are baptized into a Savior. It should magnify the name of the Lord because it's a testimony of his salvation. God identifies with his people. The fruit of faith becomes evident, and yet the fruit may not be genuine in every case. There are two dangers now, when it comes to applying baptism to those professing faith, then. On one side, we can equate baptism with conversion. You may uh, have seen that done. Uh, Baptism has often been equated with conversion and salvation, such that baptism saves is the message that is proclaimed. Baptism actually saves you, or there is no salvation without baptism, right? You can't be saved if you're not baptized. That is a danger uh, on one side. The other danger, uh, the other false teaching, would be to sever baptism from conversion, to react to that and saying, no, 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 you're not saved by baptism. Baptism is not salvation. And so we sever baptism from salvation and conversion so cleanly that baptism becomes optional. Kind of a low priority. Baptism is eh, baptism is something nice. It's it's an experience that will add depth to your Christian journey. So yeah, it's something you probably should do because it's, it's a real meaning experience, meaningful experience for you. Um, that will be just as dangerous uh, a practice. So we want to avoid both of those extremes: identifying baptism with salvation or the means of salvation, but also severing it so cleanly that it becomes an optional extra. In fact, baptism and conversion in the New Testament are so closely associated that the New Testament can use the term baptism, does use use the term baptism, as a metonymy for conversion and salvation. Uh, What is a metonymy? A metonymy is a figure of speech where we substitute one term for another term with which it's very closely related. Uh, And we all recognize that scripture does this in a place like Matthew 26. At the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, drink this cup. Now, when you pause to think about reading that literally, drink the cup, that's likely to be painful. Um, But we know what he means, right? Drink the stuff in the cup, right? The the, the 
the liquid here, the, the wine that they are partaking. He doesn't mean drink the actual cup. But we know what he means because the cup and the contents of the cup are so closely related, right? You can't have the contents without the cup. Um, they go so closely together that you can say cup but mean contents of the cup. Just like you can say the White House released a statement when you mean that, well, the presidential staff, the building didn't say anything. Um, that's what we call a metonymy. And so Peter, in 1 Peter 3.21, actually says, baptism now saves you. And don't misinterpret that to think that he's equating baptism with salvation. No. Baptism is so closely connected to salvation, should be, that you can use baptism as a figure of speech for salvation. Another example. Let's take the term diploma. What is a diploma? A high school diploma is a piece of paper uh, that uh, testifies to having completed all the graduation requirements um, of a high school education, your academic standing. Now, for most state colleges, I believe I'm speaking accurately to say that you need a high school diploma in order to enroll in one of our state universities here. And I think I'm also speaking accurately that pretty much all you need is a high school diploma to enter uh, one of our state universities here. Uh, I don't think they'll turn you away uh, if you're willing to pay and you've got a high school diploma. But what do we mean when we say you need a high school diploma? Is it about the piece of paper? So that if you can enroll with a high school diploma, could you steal one and get in because you've got the piece of paper there? Or better yet, if, um, say, we have the case of a student uh, who, in May, preparing for graduation, diplomas are being printed, one uh, has his name on it, and yet school isn't done yet, and he's on the edge, and he... He doesn't make it. He fails too many classes. Plus, there's this discipline issue that came up, and he ends up getting expelled. And, well, the diploma's there with his name on it. It's already been printed. The fact that there's paper there with his name on it, if you could get a hold of that, is that good enough? No. The paper really means nothing. It's worthless. Likewise, if somebody decides, ah, I'm not into graduations, he doesn't bother going, he doesn't even pick up his diploma, or he does, and then there's a house fire and the diploma burns. Does that mean, ooh, until we can get you that piece of paper, you, you now are not eligible for enrollment? Not at all. The college doesn't even look at the diploma, we all know, right? You know, just call the school office, verify. They want the transcript. It's the transcript that says something. Um, and yet we use the word diploma. Why? Because the normal experience, the almost universal experience, is that when somebody completes their high school education, they go through this graduation ceremony, which is not required. They pick up this piece of paper, this diploma, and so the two are identified, and we can say diploma and mean high school education, but it really is not about the diploma. It's did you pass your classes? Did you learn the material you're required to learn in order to receive a passing grade? That's what qualifies you for college, not the piece of paper. But we say you need a diploma. Baptism works the same way. It's not the water right that, that, uh, to which you owe your standing before the Lord. Rather, it's what God has done in the heart. It's the faith that you uh, profess. That's what makes a person 
the believer saved. And yet, it should be so closely connected with baptism that we can say baptism and refer to that experience of salvation. Because in the case of a diploma, if somebody doesn't have a diploma, it does raise questions. We want to know, well, why not? What, what happened that you, you don't have the diploma? And likewise, if there's somebody who says, yeah, I'm a believer. No, I haven't been baptized. Well, that should raise questions. Why? Why not? What's wrong? What's your hesitation? So, application for us. What should we take away from uh, the connection Paul is drawing between baptism and the exodus? Being baptized proclaims a message. When we are baptized, what we should be saying by that is, I so trust Christ that belonging, with, belonging to him is worth risking the loss of anything else. Friends, family, reputation, opportunities, anything that I might lose because I've now been baptized and people are associating me with Christ. I'm casting in my lot with Christ. I will take the risk of losing those things. I am literally taking the plunge. Not being baptized also proclaims a message. And that message could be something as strong as, I want nothing to do with that Christ. <laughs> no, I am not baptized. Or it could be, if I am identifying with Christ but not being baptized, the message that we're sending, whether we mean to or not, is, yeah, I am following Christ for now, but I'm keeping my options open. I don't want to be too tied. Sounds like a fear of commitment, which sounds a lot like our American culture. Uh, we don't like commitment in our American culture. Um, employers do not commit to their employees for the long term. They're dispensable. Employees are not committed to their employers like they might have been at one time. Marriage, uh, we're told that divorce rates are at a historic low. Um, but don't pat yourself on the back. It's not because we've become so much more faithful as a nation. It's because we're not getting married. Right? Who needs the commitment of marriage? We'll just live together. And so in baptism, um, we're expressing commitment. I'm taking Christ as my husband, not trying to get him as a live-in boyfriend. Jesus said to somebody seeking to be a disciple, the man said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So to be a disciple but not committed is to not be a disciple. I mentioned five groups uh, for whom a proper understanding of baptism is important. What does scripture say to each of those groups? To those responsible for baptism, to the leaders, um, elders here, my elders here in this church, uh, two cautions. On the one hand, be careful whom you baptize. Don't be in a hurry to baptize. Uh, one of the most disturbing baptisms I've ever witnessed was not at this church, but uh, at a church that uh, we belonged some years ago where a young woman uh, was baptized. And as we do, as our practice here, she had an opportunity to address the congregation along with her baptism. And from the baptismal tank, she confessed her faith in Jesus. But 
um, instrumental in her salvation was, uh, I'll call him Ron, um, a young man who then had become her boyfriend. Maybe, I'm not sure I have the sequence of events right, maybe even fiancé at that point. But in her testimony, she had twice as much praise in honor of Ron for how he had helped her and ministered to her and been patient with her, etc., than she had to say about Christ. And even at the time, Rebecca and I both went away from that saying, I have a very bad feeling about this. Um, is this truly faith in Christ? They did get married. See, things seemed to be going all right, although we would have said that she uh, still had a lot of immaturity as a believer. Um, but eventually she left her husband, uh, repudiated the faith, left her children. Um, and I hate to say it, always hate to say it, but my feeling is, yeah, I could have seen that coming. She was baptized in haste. Her profession was not really credible. It was based in this young man that she was dating, not really in the Lord. So leaders, be careful whom you baptize. Do not baptize to augment numbers, right? The success of our church can be measured in terms of how many people are professing faith and being baptized, but that's not the point. Do not baptize to augment numbers or to be in a hurry. But on the other hand, Don't neglect to proclaim baptism as a command of the Lord. And I have to say for both myself and my wife, Rebecca, we were both baptized years after uh, our profession of faith. And there were reasons for that, but it was, it it created a a problem. Um, Baptism did not function as it really should have, as it was designed to, because of that long delay between I'm committing to Christ, oh, and now here's something that churches had not prioritized, and that is baptism. To parents, to mentors, uh, those in a position of counseling uh, young believers, same two counsels, don't pressure into baptism uh, so that motives of the one baptized are mixed. We want to proclaim baptism clearly, but not pressure so that somebody would be baptized to please me as a parent. But on the other hand, don't make it sound optional. Make it clear. Being a disciple means being baptized. And hope of eternal life is for those who are disciples alone, not for any other. Make it clear that that's how significant baptism is. But baptism should be for Christ and not for the parent or for the friend. To you who have been baptized, Do not think of your baptism as water under the bridge. Yep, did that. That's been taken care of. That was was neat and important, but that's now, I'm, I'm past that. No. The reality of baptism is that Christ has graciously allowed his name to be attached to you. And Christ has therefore allowed his reputation to depend on your life choices and my life choices. Wow. Christ's reputation depends on our life choices. So, am I adorning the gospel of Christ and making it attractive by my life choices? Or am I producing scoffers in the world by my hypocrisy so that they see, yeah, he's one, he's one of those Christians, and look at how he lives. I don't want anything to do with that. Because God attached his name to Israel, it created a crisis. 
God rebukes the Israelites in Ezekiel 36. He says that my name was blasphemed because of you. Everybody knew that you were my people, and I had to send you into exile because of your idolatry. And that made the people think of me as being an impotent God who could not protect his own. My name was blasphemed because of you. But in connection to that warning, Ezekiel also gives a hope because God says, but I will act for the sake of my name, not for your sake, Israel. You have not deserved this, but for my name's sake, I will save you and I will give you a new heart. I will redeem you. Why? Because you bear my name. If you have been baptized, God has a special care and concern about you because his name is tied to you. And therefore, he will never lose interest in you, not because you deserve it so well, but for the sake of his name that he has graciously allowed to be attached to you. To you who profess Christ, yet short of being baptized, I would ask, what's your reservation? What's holding you back? Jesus says in Luke 12, 8 and 9, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What message do you want to send? Um, Baptism is a profession that I'm in. I'm following the Savior forever. He is mine. And finally, to those of you who have not been baptized, those of you that have... um, no claim to Christ, have not professed being a Christian, have not believed in the name of Jesus Christ, we here who are baptized have something to say to you through our baptism. And that is Christ can be trusted with all that is most precious to you, with your future, with your identity, with your very soul. By our baptism, we say that we have found Jesus to be just Yet we have found him to be gentle, and he will not abuse you, and he will never, never forsake you. And we are willing to stake our reputation on that. We're willing to stake our lives on that truth. Trust him, call upon him, and take up his cause. So could it be the case that the problems in our society, in our culture, can be attributed to a faulty view of baptism? Probably not. But... Imagine what our country would be like if the churches all made plain that being in Christ means commitment, being in with both feet. And that if those who were baptized, imagine if everyone baptized was conscious that the weight of the glory of Christ was upon him. What would that look like? And what would it look like if non-Christians could know clearly who is a disciple, who is not, a disciple of Christ, and can then compare the two easily, clearly. That's a land that I would like to see. That's a land that's worth pursuing. Please pray with me.